You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital parts of our planet, the Blue Ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving area with ocean life above and below the surface. The ocean holds so many mysteries to us, the habitats, the life, the mysterious ways it moves and mixes, its temperatures, its ability to absorb carbon dioxide. And as a species, as humans, we've, we've made great strides in being able to enter it and see it below the surface with technology aiding greatly. Before scuba was invented, we were limited by our breath to explore underwater. And this is how humans first accessed the sea, and today we still access access the sea this way. If you've ever held your breath underwater before, you have been freediving. It is the most natural and equipment-light way to explore the depths of the water. Freediving is diving underwater without air. And when I think about freediving, I think about the movie The Big Blue from 1988, which was a fictional story about two uh, competing freedivers that were trying to break records of depth and time. And it was quite an intense sport. It was my introduction to the whole idea of freediving, even though there's a huge variety of it. There is a sled and there's competition and safety divers and all sorts of interesting things. And it just really brought me to wondering about the physiology of how humans can go underwater for so long and what we do how do we survive, how our body adapts. And there is some pleasure in it as well, as as many people enjoy, and my guest today specifically. Today, we're going to be exploring this whole range of free diving and exploring underwater by holding your breath. And we're going to talk about the history, the physiology, and all all interesting aspects regarding free diving when I come back with my guest, Francesca Coe. Stay with us. My guest today is Francesca Coe, and Francesca is a Patty Scuba Diver Instructor, Professional Association of Diving Instruction Instructors, that is. She is a competitive freediver and also serves as a judge for an international organization for freediving. She is also the Vice President of Team USA and U.S. Freediving and an editor for the world's largest online freediving and scuba diving magazine, deeperblue.com. She's a long-standing board member for the Farallons Marine Sanctuary Association and served as a primary stakeholder representing scuba divers for the North Central Coast Study Region for the California Marine Life Protection Act. 
that put in place marine protected areas along the state waters of California. Francesca, welcome. You're live on the air. Hello, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Thanks for waiting for so long. It's great to have you. And I've had so much fun researching this wide topic of free diving. And thanks for coming on the show. First, tell us a little bit about how you got into free diving. I know that you've been a long time avid scuba diver, but free diving is kind of a whole nother level of going underwater. How did you personally get into this, this sport? Well, it probably all started a very long time ago when I wanted to go in the deep end with my older cousins and my big brother and older sisters. And I was very small and not a great swimmer. And my very athletic and uh, direct grandmother at the time, I I asked her, I was like, Grandma, I want to go in with the big kids. I want to go in the deep end. And uh, in her very uh, typical way, she just directly pushed me in the pool (laughs) and walked away. And I think that she was trying to cultivate, I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but I think she was really trying to cultivate um, this comfort level of sink or swim, knowing full well that I had the capacity to handle it. Um, and probably not too far out of reach uh, should I have really panicked. Um, But in seriousness, uh, being in the water and living here in Northern California is one of my life's greatest pleasures. And I came to freediving from my friends and being exposed to the activities that uh, they were participating in and, you know, seeing the level of enjoyment and the different kind of interactions that they were having in the marine environment and with wildlife and um, learning new techniques and improving one's own comfort and ability in the water really intrigued me. And so I think as I was entering into as far um technical diving as I could. I had become a rebreather diver. I was doing a lot of expeditions. At that moment, friends of mine who run a free diving training agency invited me to come to the big island on Hawaii to participate in a women's clinic, a women's only clinic. And I jumped at the chance and I, you know, I fell in love. I I dove in and I, I fell in love. There's something very liberating and um, relaxing about being in the water unencumbered um, and really just being present in the moment. And as someone who had been teaching as an instructor for a long time and who had been doing a lot of technical diving and thinking about PPO2 monitors and stage bottles and decompression rates, um, it was really nice to sort of bring it back to the basics and and so my first foray into actual training for freediving was about six years ago, and I've just been hooked ever since. That must be an amazing experience to be able to let go of all the technology, just let it all go, and really just be focused on being underwater and yourself in terms of managing your breath and comfort underwater. I can imagine that being a huge release. Although for me, when I did my scuba diving uh, dive master training, I did not feel freedom when I had to do the ditch and dawn underwater. I was terrified of this 
horrible exercise that I had to do. <laughs> so I have a lot more practice to do, I think. Well, I think that, you know, speaks to there are different levels of, of comfort. And arguably, you could say that every human being has the technology um, in terms of their physical capacity and in terms of their mental capacity. But being trained and disciplined and relaxed from a physiological standpoint is one thing. From a psychological standpoint is a completely different thing. And I think that's where you see the distinction where um, mind over matter or really understanding what it takes to feel comfortable has a lot more to do with your mental state of mind than your physical prowess. And it seems from my research that that is a really big piece of this sport, especially when it gets towards the competitive aspect, is really training your mind that you can overcome those um, natural instincts that your body says, it's time to breathe, that you have to really trust that your body's going to be okay. At least that's what I was reading about. And a part of me wonders, like, it just doesn't seem right, though, to ignore your body saying, I want to breathe. Let's talk a little bit about the physiological aspects of this, because there's a lot of interesting science behind it in terms of breath holding and oxygen and carbon dioxide. And how is it that we can adapt to the water and do better underwater? I'd like to break it down into three physiological stages um, when you're talking about what happens to the body and its own natural survival mechanisms um, and instinctively what it does, how it responds, and how it provides you with the technology that you need, so to speak, Great. without a scuba tank and, and without electronics. Um, and the first stage of that is really being immersed in water. Um, if folks were to try this at home, if they were to place their face in a, in a sink full or a bucket full of cold water and just be still for a moment, they would find that their pulse and their heart rate would slow down automatically. And that's because the brain is picking up signals from receptors that are under your eyes and in your cheeks telling the rest of the body, telling the airway that it's submerged. So everything else in the system should slow down to conserve oxygen, right? Because the body needs oxygen to metabolize to support all of the organs. And the second stage of that is what we call constriction. So vasoconstriction is a pretty fancy 50-cent word, meaning that your veins and your arteries contract. It happens in your arms and in your legs. It happens in anything that's sort of peripheral to the circulatory system. And what it means is that your body is forcing your blood to the core of your body so that you're using less oxygen in the muscles and your extremities and that the optimal supply of blood and important gases like oxygen goes to the essential organs, namely your heart your lungs, and your brain. So this is a very clever system that we really have no control over. This is just happening naturally. And then the third stage is what we call blood shift, and that's an extension of this vasoconstriction. 
But it's really what allows us as humans to dive really deep without damaging our lungs. So in diving, as you know, since you've gone through these courses in scuba, the deeper you go, the more pressure is exerted on you and on your body and everything that's descending. And our lungs have a minimum and a maximum flexibility limit. And when they reach a certain depth, there's going to be an enormous amount of pressure being applied to them. And as they compress, due to that increased water pressure, the airspace gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So maybe you start out as the size of an orange, and then you go down to the size of a lime, and then maybe you go down to the size of a cherry or a blueberry. So there is a limit to how small this can, our lung tissues can go before they become damaged. And in order to prevent that, the capillaries inside the lungs, when we start diving deeper, and these are the capillaries, by the way, which really conduct the important gas exchange between the blood and the alveoli in your lungs to allow for body function. They, those capillaries actually get bigger, and they fill with more blood to compensate and make that gas exchange even more efficient to allow that airspace to continue to contract without tearing or stressing the lung tissues. And so these are all these things that happen to the body naturally um, in this, what I call sort of phenomenon of humans free diving. So, excuse me. So that is incredible science in terms of all of this. And this is all the same stuff I assume is applied towards marine mammals and how they are able to survive at depths with such long, long dives. Is this called the marine mammal reflex? That's right. It's the it's called the mammalian dive reflex. Mammalian and, dive. You know, they clearly offer much greater proficiency because as species, that's where they are. They're spending all of their time in the water. And, you know, we as humans, we can adapt and we can become... Um, much more fluid in our free diving the more time we spend in the water. But this is what's happening in all of the marine mammals, be them sea lions or dolphins or sea otters. This is exactly what's happening in all of them as well. So from what I understand that there are some body types that are more conducive to being able to free dive and dive for length of time and depth. And can you speak to that a little bit? Is there, because when I was reading a little bit about the history and the Ama divers, the cultural, the um, Japan, the women in Japan, it seems like women have an advantage in terms of, of this uh, ability to dive underwater. And is that because of the distribution of fat being differently on the women versus the men? Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, clearly I'm biased because I'm a woman <laughs> um, of Japanese descent. So um, take that with a grain of salt. But uh, what I find fascinating about freediving is that um, you can definitely have folks who have a predisposition. In other words, they may have been born blessed with a large residual lung volume. Um, they may have, you know, large hands and feet. Um, and long arm spans and leg spans, which are really useful when you're trying to propel yourself 
um, underwater with only your body. But in terms of um, the physical characteristics, what's, what's very interesting, at least in my experience, is that um, I have seen people who are in the most excellent physical condition, very fit, very streamlined, and I've seen people who are, let's just say, enjoying Haagen-Dazs a little bit more. And the biggest distinction for those different body types is really less the physiology and more the the mental discipline. Um, and, you know, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, and you'll see this especially in competitive freediving. Um, competitive freediving takes the form of both depth diving and pool diving. And we see this a lot in international competitions in terms of depth, where people are trying to dive as deep as they can in one of three disciplines, either swimming down with just their hands and feet or swimming down with the assistance of a monofin or pulling themselves down a line just using their hands. And what we find is that there will be a whole set of people who will be, you know, restricting their diet and watching what they're eating and eating things that will help um, their body and the metabolization of oxygen, things like beets and dark greens and doing yoga and not drinking alcohol and, and be very disciplined in that regard. And then you'll see other cultures, in particular I'm thinking about the uh, fin- a lot of Finnish divers, a lot of divers from the Netherlands, and they will continue their merriment, eating what they want, drinking what they want, and they just have a very relaxed attitude. And you will see both sets of divers performing on par depths that are astounding and and each succeeding in their own ways. And, you know, I really attribute that to every person has a specific ritual and routine that they follow. And whatever gives them that clarity of mind and keeps them relaxed is what is going to result in the best performance. Now, I happen to think that if you're keeping your system clean and you're not eating dairy or things that create more mucus that could create blockage in your sinuses, that's probably a good idea. Um, And in general, you can follow some common sense things, but it really boils down to how do people respond in the dive situation and what keeps them the most relaxed? Because the key is relaxation and minimizing the energy exerted so that you can make the most out of the limited one breath of oxygen that you have before you perform your dive. I was on Catalina teaching students and we would do snorkels. I mean, this was something I did do every single day, sometimes two or three times a day with a group of students and dive underwater and, excuse me, try to find interesting things to share with them. And I remember at the beginning of the season, after not diving for a while, I'd be, it'd be really hard to do and more stressed. And then as time went on, it got so much more relaxing and I could easily just slip down underwater and felt so much more at ease. So I really can relate to the idea about the mental aspect of that, as well as just the regular exposure and practice. And it just becomes a little bit more a part of the background in terms of what you do. I miss those days of just being underwater half the day. 
Yeah, it's a great time to just have fun and recreate. You know, I, I do want to mention just for anyone who is listening, you were um, talking about uh, this movie, The Big Blue, directed by Luc Besson, uh, talking about the friendship and the competition between Enzo Mallorca and Jacques Mayol. And, you know, the film, um, well, it's a real relic of the 80s, that's for sure. <laughs> but in terms of the way that they um, revealed the story, I just want folks to know that that is actually a true story. There absolutely was an Italian diver named Enzo Mallorca, and there was a French diver named Jacques Mayol. And um, and they had a very friendly rivalry and competition um, in terms of seeing who could go deeper and, and who would get there first and who could stay longer. And back when their rivalry um, was taking place, the most common form of freediving for competitions was to ride a sled down. So they were literally... Um, taking a weighted sled that was attached to a cable, and they were, you know, wearing a wetsuit and, and sometimes goggles, sometimes not, and they were holding onto the sled, and the sled would descend, and then they would try to get to a target depth. You know, maybe it was 50 meters, maybe it was 60 meters, maybe it was 70 meters, and they were doing this at a time where there was so little known about the sport and what the physiology impacts were and what would happen. And they were really breaking new ground and exploring a whole new territory. And, you know, the reason I bring it up is, A, because I want people to know that it's actually based on a true story. Uh, Two, I want people to know that there was also a fellow named Bob Croft, who is really the godfather of American freediving. Um, so Bob Croft, Enzo Mallorca, and Jacques Mayol were doing all of this extraordinary exploration and, and, and really being pioneers for the sport. And lastly, and perhaps most interestingly, the depths that they were achieving that they thought were just really, the, that was it. People couldn't go any further. The depths they were trying to achieve are now probably 50% of what is being achieved by people at the highest levels of competition with themselves being propelled only by themselves, not riding a sled, so physically swimming down uh, the deepest constant weight, which is the discipline where people use the big monofin and swim down. The, the, the deepest record to date is 128 meters. Wow. That's um, just over 300 feet, 350 but, feet about. Mm-hmm. That's insane. I was going to ask how, how deeper. I mean, that's pretty much, well, it's still a little bit of light down there. It's not completely dark. Well, it depends. So, you know, 128 meters is about 422 feet. And, you know, think about buildings like the Empire State Building, and then you begin to understand how deep these divers are going and and really how the mammalian dive reflex is kicking in to allow them to do that. So this is interesting. You're bringing up a point that I want to make a distinction of. So there is the free diving that's more recreationally used, such as photography underwater, and people will dive down, maybe not quite so deep, just to be 
in a really neat spot for taking photographs without bubbles and the uh, distraction perhaps to the environment, to the animals that might be around it, or also spearfishing underwater or just getting underneath and being suspended underwater. And now there's the whole this whole other aspect of free diving that you're talking a little bit about here that is to the competition. And it seems like the competitions are about uh, utilizing our new knowledge about the physiology and um, training our minds and bodies to be able to go to depth. And it seems that the that they're kind of two totally different disciplines altogether in terms of enjoying this sport. And can you talk a little bit about the 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 whole approach in terms of you mentioned there are three different kinds of competition, those that will dive down on their own, the monofin, and then the line dive. And is the sled no longer a thing anymore? I, you mentioned they pull themselves down. And, and how do they get back up? Do they pull themselves back up, swim back up, or use their natural buoyancy? How does that work? Sure. So um, I'll just quickly go through that. In terms of the association the international association for the development of free diving which is the basically the international olympic committee of free diving you know it's the governing sports agency um that agency recognizes uh, three depth disciplines that are all self-propelled so one is constant weight with a monofin one is constant no fins, which is sort of a modified breaststroke, swimming down and swimming back up. And in all of these instances, if you're swimming down, you have to swim back up. If you're pulling yourself down, you have to pull back up. And free immersion is where you're pulling on a line with your arms. Um, in, in the pool, there are static apnea, which is basically still holding your breath, dynamic, which is swimming horizontally on one breath as many lengths of the pool as you can with a monofin, and then dynamic, no fins, uh, which is the horizontal, dynamic, modified breaststroke, no fins on your feet. And in terms of recreational freediving, you know, I think this is what's the most exciting because, well, especially for us here in California, we have prolific sea life, we have gorgeous coastlines, we have fantastic underwater and terrestrial parks that you can explore. And you get to increase your area of exploration by more than 70% when you walk to the waterline and you get in. And um, it's something that you can share with friends and family, and you can really experience the bounty and the beauty of California in ways that are indescribable um, unless you, you know, put a mask on and stuck your face underwater. And you don't have to, if you're not interested in doing competitions, that's great. There's plenty to do in here in California, whether you're taking pictures or maybe you're hunting and gathering, you know, you can participate in eating of delicious seafood, whether you're catching a fish or you're picking an ab or an urchin. And it's just a really great way to bring yourself back to connecting with nature um, and really enjoying something that's so special where we live in a place where the upwelling and the sea life and the different things that we get to see in our ocean, um, you know, they just don't exist anywhere else. 
this is a global activity, and the, a lot of the history of early access seems to take place in Greece and off of Japan and some warmer water areas. It seems like a lot of these competitions happen in warmer water areas. Is there a difference in terms of the body response in cold water versus warm water? Because it seems like most of the competitions for the you know diving deep part of this sport is in warmer water. What's it like in cold water? So, you know, the reason for warmer, more tropical destinations for some of these competitions um, has to do with being able to provide safety and redundancy in the competition. And so you really want to have places that are protected so there's no current, and you want to have places where there's great visibility um, so that you can see the divers and you can see what's happening. There are always auxiliary systems, rebreather divers at depth, scuba divers along the way, sonar systems to track the divers. But having good visibility, um, is there's really no replacement for that. So those are sort of production logistical reasons for having them in places where the weather can be more predictable. Mm-hmm. You can have amazing visibility here in California and along the north coast. It's just less predictable. And if you want to get the depths that these divers are achieving, you have to go pretty far offshore, um, which creates sort of a logistical headache when you're trying to facilitate, you know, tens if not hundreds of divers. There actually is a benefit in terms of cold water because it kicks in the mammalian dive reflex sooner. So, you know, in terms of technically, is it better? Well, the colder temperatures definitely speak to certain reactions that are more useful. Um, But in terms of other things like current and visibility, it's a little less desirable because it's less predictable. Got it. However, I will say that for spearfishing or things like abalone diving, you know, you can't do that with the kinds of, you know, whether it's certain sea bass or lingcod, certain things, you're just not going to get that in the warmer temperatures. And I, as a, a recovering scuba instructor, I always like to remind people that when you learn to dive in cold water, you're prepared to dive anywhere. And the inverse is not true. If you can handle yourself in cold water, you can handle yourself in the mild, easy, 300-foot vis water that you're going to get in the Caribbean. If you learn in those conditions and then you come here to California, it's going to be a little bit of a rough ride. Definitely agree with that. For those tuned in, uh, you're listening to KWMR and Point Race Station in Bolinas and San Geronimo Valley and live on the web at kwmr.org. And I'm talking with Francesca Coe, and we're talking about freediving and the many aspects of this incredibly interesting, challenging sport. Tell us a little bit about places you like to go in California and how do you do it? Do you get on a boat? Do you start at the shore? And maybe talk us through like how you prepare to to go diving. Sure. And um, before I answer that, let me just, um, before we get to the top of our hour, give some resources to the folks who might be listening in who are either already participating as divers or who are curious and would like to learn more. Um, We have a lot of great 
resources here in the North Coast, and we have got a lot of great instructors and a lot of people participating. And so just a few uh, websites to check out if anyone's interested. Um, freediveblog.com, that's freediveblog.com, which is a blog that's written by Aaron McGee, a former U.S. national record holder and uh, resident in Cloverdale who runs clinics up and down the Sonoma and Mendocino coast. And you can learn more about her clinics and her classes at pacificcoastfreediving.com as well. And then for people who just want to learn more about where are some good hunting spots or where they can spearfish certain types of species, you can always check out NorCalUnderwaterHunters.com. That's NorCalUnderwaterHunters.com. And, of course, you can always go to the DeeperBlue.com forums, and we have a whole Northern California section um, that's where an active conversation is always going on. But in terms of what I like to do, um, we, again, are really blessed to have access up and down the coast. And when it comes to depth training, typically I I like to go to points south that are a little more protected. So um, there's a beach south of Monterey uh, towards Carmel called Monastery Beach, and you will actually be about 100 or 200 yards off of the mouth of the canyon. So you'll get as much depth as you want there. And there's a group of divers, um, Monterey Bay Free Divers on uh, Yahoo Groups, and they organize um, weekly and biweekly trips out there so that you'll always have a dive buddy. That's, That's an important attribute to remind folks that you should always be diving with a buddy, if not multiple buddies. And then up Um, Along the north coast, you know, if you're hardy and you like to hike, there's a fantastic hike down. um, Are you familiar where Elephant Rock is in Point Reyes? Yes. Okay. So, A, it's beautiful, and even if you don't want to get in the water, it's a fantastic hike. But if you're in good physical shape and you have good cardio stamina and you're willing to hike down the side of a mountain... Um, it's a really pretty spectacular spot. And the beautiful thing about Sonoma Coast and Mendocino is that there are plenty of really great spots to get in the water, whether you're in Salt Point Park and you're going to Gersel Cove or you're going in at Fort Ross or any of the parks in Sea Ranch. I, in particular, like the Mendocino Headlands, um, because it has, it offers a lot of coves that when you're getting sort of a northwest swell, um, there are a lot of sort of protected coves that you can get into when otherwise it would seem the whole coastline is blown out. And typically, um, this is mostly shore diving. You know, we're driving to a spot and packing our gear, and some spots we pick because we're feeling a little lazier and we want less of a hike, and and other spots we pick um, because we like to make a day out of it and, and bring a picnic and hike and do the whole thing. What type of wetsuit do you wear? Is it a pretty thick one for free diving and a weight belt? Or how do you determine your wetsuit if you're just going to be free diving versus scuba diving? So I have um, what is called an open cell neoprene wetsuit. Um, all of my free diving suits are open cell, which are a little bit 
um, softer and more malleable than like a typical scuba or surf suit, um, which is a little tougher and and less flexible. And um, you can decide what you can tolerate in terms of temperature. Uh, depending on what the activity is, I'm either wearing a three, a five, or a six mil suit. A three mil suit, if it's really warm out and we're not going that deep and we're going to be swimming out far so I'm going to be getting hot I'll, I'll wear my three mil if if I'm going to be in the water for a whole day of activity you know I might pick the five mil or the six mil all of these are suits that have hoods so you're really staying pretty warm um I have never been cold in my six mil open cell suit. In fact, usually the opposite. I'm usually too hot. And in terms of weight, um, what you what you want to do is have enough weight so that when you get to a certain depth, you are going to be uh, neutrally buoyant. And so, typically, depending on which suit that I wear, I'm wearing in a range from eight pounds to. 14 pounds of weight, and um, just because it's more comfortable for me, I wear some of it on a belt around my hips, sitting really low below my diaphragm so that my um, breathing is not restricted at all, and and then sometimes I wear a neck weight just because I'm used to it from my competition diving, um, just so that I have the weight distributed and I have a better trim in the water. I never heard about neck weights before. Yeah, we make them out of um, in the um, the inner tubes for bicycle tires, and we put lead shot in them. And um, and again, it's something that you would want to learn from an experienced diver and try out. Some people don't like it; it's not comfortable for them. But if you are used to it, it's a nice way to distribute the weight. And the other thing that's important is the placement of the weight belt. As I was mentioning to you, a lot of people will cinch it really tight along their waist. Because you're trying to access as much of your residual lung volume as possible and you're trying to get a deep breath from your diaphragm, the lower you can wear your belt, the better so that you're not restricting um, that muscle. Nice. That's good to know. We just have about three or four minutes left, and I'm curious, just when you... <clears throat> kind of get to the spot that you want to be to go down for a little bit. What what do you do to relax, to get ready, to kind of equilibrate, get some equilibrium before diving down? I've heard about people taking like almost hyperventilating a little bit, but I know that's really dangerous. So can you just talk a little bit about the surface, what you do at the surface to help you prepare to go down for a little bit? Sure. Um, so we definitely do not recommend any kind of hyperventilating. That's a bad idea um, because it, when you remove carbon dioxide from your body, the mammalian dive reflex doesn't kick in as soon as it should, right? And you don't want to do anything to prohibit that. You naturally want that to be available to you. Um, so you always have a plan. Before you even get in the water, you make a plan. What is our entry point? What is our exit? What are the conditions? Do we need to have a different exit plan depending on if the conditions change? Who's being buddied up with who? 
are there two of you, are there four of you, or are there three of you, and how are we going to rotate? Because it's always one up, one down. You don't all go down at the same time. Um, you always want to be a backup to one another. And then when you're heading out, I typically take a float, um, either because we're going to be collecting um, abalone or urchin if it's in season, and or just so that we can hold our stuff. If we've got extra gloves or we have cameras or we have water, it's nice to have a float, something to just all congregate around. And I typically just like to assess where I am. So I'll put my face in the water, which, again, kicks in that immersion phase of the physiology where your sensory receptors are saying, oh, hey, body, you're submerged. Let's slow the heart rate down. And I'll... I'll I'll breathe through my snorkel and just really look and see. You know, it may be a split pea soup day, so there may not be a lot to see. (laughs) (laughs) Not until you dive down anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, you're just taking your time and acclimating to your surroundings. And, you know, if it's a better viz day, you can see what's going on beneath you. If it's not as good viz day, you're just calming yourself and preparing yourself for the dive. Um, And typically, even on the days where there's not great viz here in Northern California, I find that usually when you dive down and you get below a certain layer, whether it's plankton or turbidity from wind or a storm, um, usually at depth there is an increase of visibility. It might be minimal, but um, usually when you can get through the top layer, there's an increase, even if it's only five-foot viz. And then when you're down below, what's the signal for you to come up? Yeah, well, it's a combination of things, right? It may be um, the objective. Maybe I'm trying to get a really great shot of uh, a photograph shot of an anemone, and, you know, maybe I've gotten it right away, so I come back up. Um, Every diver is going to have a different level of ability, so for some people, being down for 10 or 20 or 30 seconds is enough, and then they come back up. For other people who are more comfortable in the water and who have spent more time, maybe they're spearfishing, you know, they're going to be down there for a minute checking out a reef or checking out specific um, rocks to see if there are any fish. And for me, I, you know, it depends on the conditions. It depends on how I'm feeling that day. And I really just listen to my body, and I also listen to my training. Um, And training is so important, and I feel very privileged to have been trained by the best. Um, Performance Freediving International is a a great training agency, and there are a lot of good training agencies in the United States. Uh, Freediving Instructors International is also another great agency. But you're really listening your body and how you feel that day and what your energy levels are and um, know that you're responsible to not just yourself, but you're responsible to your buddy who you're diving with and you don't want to put that person in a situation where they're having to do something because you stayed down a little bit too long. Well, Francesca, we're just about out of time here. I have another guest coming on for the rest of the show, but... Thank you very much for kind of talking us through some of the physiology and uh, just the experience. And I was really visualizing along the way, especially for California, just the, the pea soup water and diving through it and seeing stuff. It's really an amazing opportunity to do. And I really appreciate your recommendation for people to get training 
in this before trying it on their own. And of the websites you gave us, which are any of these really good for finding out about training? You said maybe PacificCoastFreeDiving.com would have yeah, training? Yeah, for local, for local training, PacificCoastFreeDiving.com is a great resource, um, and they can set up classes. They have classes running frequently, and if they don't have a class running in your neck of the woods or on the dates that you need it, they can recommend um, other instructors who can help. So that's PacificCoastFreeDiving.com. Any last thoughts you want to share about freediving with the audience? Uh, just that I highly encourage everyone to participate. It's something that you can do. Um, this is probably also because I'm biased, but <laughs> the older that you get, I find the better that you get at free diving. So in terms of participation, it's low impact, and you can enjoy it uh, well into your golden years. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Francesca. I really appreciate you calling in today. Having a great afternoon. Okay, thanks. Bye. All right. So we've been just listening to a talk with Francesca Coe, and she is a free diver, a scuba diver instructor, and involved in many different aspects of the sport of free diving, and recommended a couple websites, freediveblog.com, pacificcoastfreediving.com, norcalunderwaterhunters.com, probably more for the spearfishing and collecting aspect, deeperblue.com as well. And those are all great places to kind of learn more about this incredibly interesting sport and the uh, aspects of diving underwater. We're going to take a, just a quick break. And actually, when we come back, I'm going to be speaking with Logan Johnson um, about what's happening with El Nino in the Pacific. I've heard a lot in the news that we may have an El Nino coming this year. And there are a lot of scientists monitoring this. So we're going to talk a little bit more about what's happening with El Nino when we come back in one minute. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're tuned to Ocean Currents. Stick with us. We're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk a little bit more about some conditions that are setting up in the Pacific Ocean. And with me on the line here, I have Logan Johnson, the Warning Coordination Meteorologist for NOAA's National Weather Service based out of Monterey. And Logan, welcome. You're live on the air. Oh, good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. So we've been hearing a lot about El Nino in the media, and I wanted to go straight to the source. NOAA is a leading agency that monitors this oceanographic phenomena, and I'm wondering if you could give us an update of what's happening with El Nino this year. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Um, we are expecting El Nino to develop this year, and in fact, um, conditions across the uh, equatorial Pacific uh, where we monitor water temperatures, are indicating that El Nino is very close to beginning already at this point. So we do have a very high probability of an El Nino being uh, ongoing by the time we get into the fall and winter seasons of this coming year. And just as a quick backup for listeners, El Nino is basically uh, unusually warm sea surface temperatures that make their way up the coast here in California with the opposite of La Nina, which is unusually cool temperatures. And the last strong El Nino I think we had in California was 1997-98. 
And I think that's where there's a lot of uncertainty right now is do we have an idea of how strong this event could be for the Pacific? I know Californians are really dying to get some rain. Uh, yeah, that's great. We all, we all want to see the rain. So um, the, the question when we talk about El Nino becomes uh, not just is El Nino going to happen, but as you mentioned, how strong is that El Nino expected to be? Um, that's what's a little bit um, less certain at this point. Uh, we're very certain El Nino is going to develop, but uh, it's a little bit trickier to figure out exactly how strong that El Nino is going to be until it gets started. Uh, so as it as it begins to get started here over the next couple of months, we're going to get a much better sense of how strong the El Nino is going to be. So like you mentioned, uh, the strong El Nino event in the late 1990s really uh, stands out in the minds of a lot of Californians because it was a very wet uh, stormy winter season uh, with a lot of um, incidences of flooding and mudslides and things like that. Um, but that's not to say that every El Nino is going to produce that type of condition. Um, in fact, no two El Ninos are exactly the same. So as we go into this winter season, um, there's no indication that says it's going to be a strong El Nino on the order of the late 90s. Um, it could be a weak El Nino or a moderate El Nino. And in those cases, the impacts could be a little bit different than what we see in a strong El Nino year. What are some of those impacts that we might see if it's weak? So looking back historically at uh, what we've seen across the Bay Area during weak El Nino years shows that uh, the rainfall in those years tends to be a little bit more variable. There have been uh, quite a few very dry years that uh, occurred in, in weak El Ninos. Um, so there have also been some wet years that have occurred in weak El Ninos. So things get to be a little bit more variable, but on average in weak El Nino years, uh, we actually end up with a little bit less than normal in terms of rainfall across the Bay Area. So as the summer goes along, when do we get a little bit more of an idea, or do we ever get an idea, in terms of this strength, if it's being weak or strong? Is that just kind of present itself as time goes by, or do you have a, a, a good forecast as time goes by where you can determine it, it will be more stronger or weaker? Uh, the what we have as far as strength is um, we, we're monitoring what's going on right now, and we're watching how quickly uh, the water temperatures are warming, how far above normal they already are. And then we have computer models that uh, take what's already going on and project that out in future over the next several months. Um, so typically in, in the summer season, it's really about August that we start to get a pretty good sense of how strong that El Nino is going to actually end up being. Uh, at this current point, uh, as it's still developing, it's still a little bit uncertain. Uh, some of the computer models last month were beginning to hint that we're looking at a weak to moderate El Nino. Um, but it's also important to say nothing has, has really come out showing us that it's going to be a strong El Nino. So uh, I think that we should look for something more on the order of a weak to a moderate El Nino. And over the next month or so, we're going to see those um, expectations become a lot more accurate as the computer models get closer in time. Fantastic. Do you have a website that you'd recommend people to be able to uh, keep up with more timely updates regarding El Nino? I know that there's a monthly update, and there's one coming up this week where there'll be more updated information, but which website would you recommend? Um, you're correct. There's a, an, an update coming on July 10th, and that's the, um, the official update um, that provides information on you know what's happening and where things are going. Um, that's available from the Climate Prediction Center, and that's uh, CPC. And if you just Google CPC, that's part of NOAA, and uh, they are the people that monitor uh, El Nino conditions. They have a lot of uh, technical things on their websites, 
but uh, they also do have some non-technical things that uh, the general public or people who aren't as familiar with weather and climate terms might find useful. All right. And is there is elnino.noaa.gov still an active website? Yeah, elnino.noaa.gov is, is a great uh, website resource as well. In addition to just what's going on this year, they have some really cool tools that uh, help you to visualize what goes on during El Nino and uh, the impacts that you see on the weather across the United States as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you. We will stay posted for all of us here. We need to continue to deepen our water conservation efforts no matter how strong our El Nino is. It's not going to save us. But thank you so much for the update on what's happening right now. All right. Thank you very, very much and uh, glad to provide that. Thanks, Logan. Have a great afternoon. You heard it there. This is what we know right now. Definitely a, a weak El Nino, weak to moderate being predicted. We don't know how intense this El Nino might be. I definitely have been watching it closely because of the rain aspect, but very important for us to remember to deepen our water conservation efforts no matter what the outcome is with this weather and stay posted. I'll definitely keep you updated on my shows in the next few months, and it certainly will be welcome rain that comes along with this warm weather, warm water system. Well, I'm out of time here today for Ocean Currents. We talked earlier with Francesca Coe about free diving and all the aspects around exploring underwater without aided technology. And just a quick recent little update there on El Nino, which can greatly impact us here in California uh, with the weather, with the water conditions, the sea conditions, and the, the wildlife that's around. I know that I'm hosting... Um, two wildlife watching trips in August, and I'll be curious to see how uh, the water conditions will be affecting the presence of wildlife because they drastically affect the presence of wildlife based on the prey in the water and all the ocean conditions. So we'll we'll be watching, and I'll keep you posted. Ocean Currents is part of the West Marin Matters series, which is always the first Monday of every month. And I post the podcast of the show, um, reruns of the show, on our website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, where you can catch past episodes. Um, Have about eight years of shows now with many, many different topics. So keep posted there for catching up on past episodes. And thanks for listening and supporting KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.